podcast. I'm this week's host, Eddie Webb, and with me we have Matthew Peter Dawkins. That is my full name. And Dixie Cyanide. That's not my full name at all. That's my internet handle. <laughs> because that's what's on my screen, and I'm a slave to whatever is put in front of my face. That's, I, I suppose it's a fair enough way to be if you want to idle through this life without questioning the greater meanings of things. Do you even know my middle name? Uh, actually, I don't know your middle name. That's okay. I, I don't know yours. Can, can, Shannon. Should, oh, what, what's that? Shannon. Shannon? Yeah. Okay. Which really? is about an Irish, it's, a pretty, it's a fairly Irish middle name. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, that, that is not something I would have guessed. Yeah, it, most people don't. I, 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 I well, I, sometimes I put Edward S. Webb, and people like Simon, blah, 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 but like, yeah, I almost never get Shannon. So, should we have a guess at yours, Dixie? Go for it. I mean, it. there's a lot of can, names I, out there. I can tell you my middle initial if that'll help. Go, go help for it. Yeah. It's C. Ooh, okay. Hmm. Catherine. Nope. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, hmm. Ooh, what's a good name beginning with C? Cyanide. <laughs> no, but I did use that partially because it keeps my initials intact. <laughs> uh, let's go for Caroline. That is very close. Carolina? Carolyn. Ah, well. well. <laughs> what do I win? Named after my aunt on my dad's side. That is, that is her first name. Hmm. Now everybody knows our full names. Yeah, identity theft has become a lot easier. It has, yeah. My first name was supposed to be Shannon, but then I was named after my great-grandmother who passed right before I was born, so I could change to Edward. Ah. My Aunt Carolyn is still living, and she is the only person who, when she addresses like birthday cards or whatever to me, always writes my full name. Because I think she is very proud to have someone named after her. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, this week, we I don't know our guest's middle name either, um, but today we are interviewing uh, Matt McElroy. Uh, he is our operations manager here at Onyx Path and someone I've worked with for well over a decade at this point, which is scary to think about when you his, say it out loud like that. His initials are MMM, so I'm going to guess Michael. Possibly. Well, I just Mark. assumed his middle name was Muck. <laughs> <laughs> Matt McElroy. Matt Muck McElroy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, uh, Matt does a whole lot of stuff for us, and I think most people aren't super clear on what all he does. So that's some right. stuff we're going to go into in this interview. Absolutely. So uh, let's go ahead and chat with him about what Operations is and what his career has been like. And uh, now we're here with our guest today, uh, Matt McElroy. Um Matt has been working with us as the operations manager at Onyx Path Publishing for a few years now, but also he and I have worked together off and on for something like a decade, I think. Matt, is that right? Yeah, at least. I mean, I started at Drive Through in two thousand seven, so yeah. So it's 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 been it's been a while. We've worked together a lot, um, and so Dixie and I are here today to talk with him about his career um, and you know his relationship with Onyx Path, and also dig into also some of the stuff that we don't talk about as much on the Pathcast, like you know how our books get out to stores and our relationship with Drive Through and all of that. So uh, appreciate you taking the time to come on and just talk with us, Matt. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's really cool to be here. No problem. So usually with these kind of interviews, we uh, start with, um, at the beginning, how you kind of first got into uh, the tabletop beverage industry. So what, what, how did you first kind of get involved with all this stuff? Well, sort of 
a couple of different things. I was working at Borders, and I was a trainer, and I ran the our game night at the store, so I was getting to know a lot of um, publishers and authors that way. But I also ran a website called flamesrising.com, which mm-hmm. um, reviewed games, uh, interviewed creators, you among them. Um, yeah. done a lot of uh, uh, launch events like when a publisher would come out with a new game they would send us an early copy and then we would talk about how cool that is uh we would do a lot of convention coverage gen con things like that so i had press passes for years and i got to know a lot of people in the industry through those different things and i did a little bit of freelancing here and there uh abstract nova if anybody remembers some of their games Mm -hmm. um and then i originally got hired uh drive through comics because um, 2006 or so, Diamond did a what they call a threshold increase where your comic had to sell uh, X number of dollars or they wouldn't carry it anymore. So oh. I, had, I had gotten to know Steve Wick, who was running the, the entire drive through uh, network through interviewing him and getting to know different people in the industry. And I said, hey, your drive through comics should really jump on this because a whole bunch of indie publishers are not getting dis- distribution anymore. And mm-hmm. he's like, cool, let's see what you can do with that. And I wasn't actually looking for a new job at the time. <laughs> but it turns out Borders didn't have much of a future. Uh, right. So it was a good move. And then uh, Drive RPG was expanding so rapidly that um, we restructured the company. So I, I was doing both comics and RPGs mm-hmm. from there. And, of course, I was continuing to freelance and write and come up with new game ideas throughout that and getting to know lots and lots of people at white wolf um trying out different things and play testing a bunch of games mm-hmm. and um been doing it ever since yeah and and so i remember um uh it was around 2007 that i came on board with ccp white wolf as the um alternative pu- alternative production or alternative uh, uh publishing you don't operations. know what you did it's been a lot it was it was 12 years ago i i barely remember what i did yesterday um yeah, even even not- my title at drive through changed multiple times during that process as as the rpg industry grew so rapidly and more and more people were right. buy, buying pdfs instead of just print books um my role in particular moved around a bunch and it when you guys at CCP restructured how you were going to publish the mm-hmm. World of Darkness and the Chronicles of Darkness games. My role adapted to how publishers were changing their methods as well. Right, because um, initially uh, I was working with uh, Sean Patrick Fannin at Drive RPG, but then you came on board pretty quick after Sean went on to other opportunities. Um, but I, you and I were talking a lot initially about print on demand uh, uh, right before, I think it was right before, right around the time you guys got Lightning Source as your printer. This was well originally the first time we talked about it was way before because a lot of right. people were using like Lulu and um, uh, Amazon had a program before CreateSpace that I can't remember the name of now and we of course were exploring that mm-hmm. with with several different publishers and especially older out of print stuff was kind of our original idea was yep. uh, let's not compete with the new books let's get the old stuff back in print and. On the drive-through side, we wor- we tried working with lots of different options as far as POD publishers went, uh, getting samples and testing how the process would work. And eventually, we moved into Lightning Source, and that's when you and I sat down and said, 
Hey, White Wolf has a huge catalog. Yep. Gimme. Right, and um, it was, uh, like I said, a lot of getting the older stuff into print. So we were looking at things like, you know, the, the original versions of Vampire the Masquerade. Because at the time, we weren't planning to bring back Vampire the Masquerade. So it was to get the older stuff out there so people who love that can still get it. Um, and also just even more like unusual things like um, we originally, uh, we were the first people to put uh, Pendragon uh, back into print. Um, get that back again. I remember that being a particularly challenging one because the files were corrupted and weird and whatnot, and it was still news. So we kept getting like weird prints and had to figure out why did it do this. And it was it was, a, it was a very challenging time. I remember. That might be something that a lot of our readers don't actually always realize is that sometimes if you look at some of the older PDFs, like the early edition Exalted stuff and whatever, it'll mm -hmm. look markedly different from the newer ones. And that's mm -hmm. just because those those files weren't meant to be PDFs. Then and sometimes they're just scans. Because oh, that's all we have. A huge know? portion of that back catalog um, are books we physically had to cut open and scan yeah. page by page because when they were designed in PageMaker and Quark and even older, no one thought ebook or we need to prep or even archive yep. these in a file format that could be turned into an ebook. Yeah, mm -hmm. so I mean, I I saw the archive at the old Whitewell building several years ago, and it was just a room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, room full of books. So we're still doing that today with some of the back catalog and like um, you know, some of some of the books Onyx Path owns from uh, like aberrant stuff. We don't have workable um, modern files, so mm -hmm. we're doing what we can to scan. Um, so back then we were like the original plan was let's do back catalog, but so many publishers had started to move into ebooks as like ebook only we're not going to put this in print and right. then we started having the conversation of you know we could put these in pod as well and that changed the whole conversation i think it was um some of those early books like eddie that you worked on that were originally just going to be pdfs yep. that we put into print and they didn't go into distribution because they weren't something they were a small enough product that they weren't going to get a big print run but it was really, really cool that we could offer a print version. I remember one of the early ones was uh, New Wave Requiem specifically, which is one of Dixie's favorite books. I love um, New Wave Requiem. Uh, but that's part of the reason why I think, if I recall correctly, it's, it's, it has a black and white interior because we weren't sure we could do color, or we, could, we didn't have the capacity for doing color interiors at the time for print demand. Well, we did, but it was so expensive. Remember, there was oh, right. a okay. huge gap between how much a, P a black and white book and how much a color. And that's changed a lot since then. But back those early days, it was such a dramatic shift that um, you could technically do a full color book, but nobody would buy it because of the pricing. Yeah, yeah no one's going like to buy a, a, a Requiem supplement for like $100, you know? Yeah. Right, and because I remember, I remember um, uh, because at that time, um, because Steve had a relationship with White Wolf, obviously, and relationship with CCP, it was very easy for us to kind of share resources in, in those early days. Um, and so, uh, uh, Craig, um, who was our art director for at the time, I remember we were discussing the possibilities. Then, so he actually art directed that book a little bit to make sure that it would also look good in grayscale. Um, so because we were designing a little bit towards, okay, this might be a possibility to look into. Um, and there are a couple of things that didn't quite look great in grayscale. So we tweaked them at the ends to make sure that like, they, they looked good on the page because like it was an 80s book. It was meant to be very vibrant and colorful. That was the whole point uh, of the look of it. 
Um, so, and then uh, same thing, uh, Brian Glass also did some of the initial experimentation on uh, Exultant. In fact, um, her April Fool's joke was one of the initial tests uh, of the uh, adult content filter, it turned out. <laughs> um, because uh, we, we did this practical joke for Triple Exalted, and, and um, that there, uh, 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 I remember you telling me it's like, in order to put under adult filter, it has to cost money. We can't give it away for free. Right. So that's why you charged for our joke, and it went a lot bigger than we expected. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things I, one of my favorite memories from back then was all of the cool experiments uh, we were doing with the mm-hmm. format, and not not just POD, but how uh, PDF plus print packaging could work. Um, and it's it's great to see a lot of those early experiments we did have become standard practice for the entire industry about how yeah. people can can package and sell content in different ways. Some people started laying out their PDF in landscape to go on a tablet, but their book mm-hmm. in like six by nine. So it's easy to carry around in a backpack. Uh, and you could, you could take the same book and do multiple versions. Like you could do black and white or color. You could do hardcover and soft cover. So it was mm-hmm. really neat to see how that changed and people adapted to it. And our, people are still experimenting, especially as our printer options become more vibrant and a uh, lot m- more variety. Mm-hmm. So, it's so yeah, funny. Um, we, sorry, God. No, I, I was just say it's like um, I, I, it, it's always fascinating to me. Like every year or two, you come back and you're like, "Hey, this new thing is now available," and I'm like, "Oh, what can we do with that? And what options can we explore?" Yeah, you're right. It's always very fun. Well, yeah. No, what, what I was gonna say it's 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 funny to me, like just contrasting how we package RPGs today versus how we did it, you know, when I was in high school in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Just because it's like, I remember all of us carrying around just, you know, backpacks full of RPG books to be yeah. able to play. And, you know, bringing them to school and trying to, you know, keep them safe and everything, especially if it was like raining or whatever. And now it's like you can just carry around an iPad with hundreds of books on it. And some of those books have videos in them. Like, there's all kinds of just... Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's surreal sometimes when I think about my early role-playing days versus current, you know? And I remember um, when Apple first announced the iPad, I remember Matt and I both kind of immediately were like, we need to talk about this because I think we both recognize this is going to be a huge game changer for how RPGs in particular, because because at the time Apple was making a huge push towards magazines. That was their big goal is to get these devices to actually take care of magazines. And we're like, that's a very similar use case to RPGs. Which is so funny because I feel like magazines are still dying, <laughs> even though you can read them on tablets. Yeah, it just never worked out. But I mean, um, uh, uh, it was just, I remember when that first came out, I was like, yes, this is definitely a thing that I think our users will use a lot of. Um, and I remember uh, just Matt, Matt being giddy about it. It's like, oh, this is going to be so amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, I mean, I looked at, like the Minds of Theater Journal and Dragon Magazine mm-hmm. as one thing, but then we started talking about smaller supplements like the SASs yep. as a as a thing that could be formatted specifically for tablet size. And uh, I was like, there's so many cool different things we can do here. Now I just have to convince publishers that this is the case. So I need somebody to take the first step or right. the first arrow, you know, either way. Um, <laughs> I was fine with that as long as somebody else was taking the <laughs> the, the risk. Um, but, like, on the comic book side, because I was originally hired for drive Through Comics, um, right. and they were really resistant to digital comics. And then Comixology came along and the iPad mm-hmm. came out. But a year before that, 
I was trying to sell drive through comics to pu- comic book publishers all over the world, and they're like, nobody's ever going to read a digital comic. What's wrong with you? <laughs> I, I remember that when ebooks came out. I remember everybody being like, who wants to read on a screen? And like, <laughs> my Kindle Paperwhite is my favorite thing I own. Like, I love my Paperwhite. It's it's so nice to be able to carry hundreds of books around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's so awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so I mean, uh, we're gonna, you spend a lot of time, you know, like I said, with drive through comics, uh, drive through RPG. I think you mentioned you also started doing drive through fiction, right? Yep, yep. That's still one of my projects to this day. I'm trying to mm-hmm. offer up a cool indie support for small press fiction publishers and and self published authors, especially trying to convince authors with huge backlists of stuff that rights have reverted back to them. I'm like, you should be selling this directly yourself and managing this as your own catalog. Mm-hmm. And, and drive through fiction also carries like the entire Onyx path fiction library as well. Um, just as a cool place to get all of our stories in digital and POD. Yeah. Um, because uh, similar, you know, we're talking about experimentation, but I remember also when uh, EPUBs became more prevalent, you know, uh, we just initial experimentation with things like um, uh, the clan, the clan novels and whatnot to try to get them into different formats, seeing which work with you know, people want the PDF, with the full formatting or, you know, they're fine with reflowable text and we weren't sure which would end up being more useful. And so I remember doing some experiments with those too. Yeah. And you and I published your collection um, yep. on drive through fiction in those experimental formats we were kind of using it as a chance to learn about EPUB and what we could do with it versus just selling PDFs. Yeah. And that's my uh, slices of fate anthology, which I don't talk about very often, but um, uh, uh, yeah, it was a chance to like take, like, take really, really short form stuff and put it together and see how that worked. And initially it was, you know, people, God, I sold a few copies. It was nice. Um, Everybody give my slices of fate. Give us a break. Right, yes. <laughs> um, it is frequently on sale. Um, uh, <laughs> but I mean, it, it was, you know, and that was also directly with you as, as Flynn's rising press. Um, and that's something yeah. so even with all of this stuff juggling on, you're still also running Flynn's rising stuff and innovating with that too. Yes. I, I, we still have the website and I do publish one book a year ish. Um, yours is one of them. We're working on a book of uh, haunted house stories right now. Mm. Um, but, uh, that stuff does tend to slide towards the, I'll get to that later mm-hmm. and with all of the current projects I have going on. But um, yeah, it's fun to be able to experiment and publish uh, books that I think will be cool and that I might not be able to sell to a publisher um, because they've got their own slate full of a year's worth of books planned already. Or I come right. up with a crazy idea where it's, really only appealing to me and like maybe a half a dozen other people but with epub and pod that doesn't matter i can put it out and say hey i published a new book this year absolutely yeah and you're right you can try unusual things that that see if it, you see if there's an audience it's not as much uh, uh initial effort um so say so you're doing all this stuff um and then uh 2011 happens um rich goes off to form onyx path 2011 um, did happen Yes, 2011 was a year that occurred, yes. Um, <laughs> but also, separately, there were some layoffs at CCP. Rich went off to form Onyx Path Publishing. Um, I was still at CCP at that time. Uh, but uh, I think, Matt, you were like immediately our contact at DriveThru. For yeah, I had already been managing uh, all the White Wolf-related 
projects, and since Onyx Path was starting to publish uh, V20 supplements and the license for Exalted and Chronicles of Darkness, it just made sense for me to keep managing that account because I was also managing other licensors and related products, uh, stuff tied to White Wolf's IP, uh, different publishers, uh, translators, all of those things under the whole drive-through uh, setup kind of became my account. So like the exalted comics that Udon did were mm-hmm. part of that package that I managed. So when Rich was uh, looking for solutions and, and getting into publishing more World of Darkness stuff, basically I was his main contact at drive uh Figuring out the early days of Kickstarter fulfillment was an right. interesting challenge for a lot of us. Um, we're all so had... glad to have James now. Like James Bell, who runs our Kickstarters, is the best oh, thing God. ever. Oh my God, he is the best thing ever. Yeah, and on the drive-through side, uh, there were tools to give uh, customers free, like reviewers, free copies of stuff. So it was like, how do we take those tools and make them a, something a publisher can use to um, give all of their Kickstarter backers copies mm-hmm. and not not break the system and make sure the right customer gets the right book. Uh, so those were some of the early challenges we were i was doing back then because kickstarter was sort of the wild west it's yeah publishers were trying all kinds of different things customers were interacting with them in different ways uh some of the early onyx path kickstarters are very different from how we do them now Mm -hmm. Uh, partly partly as you say dixie is because of james but also we've just had to learn and experiment through each kickstarter how to get products to people Oh yeah, I've 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 had occasion to go back and look at some of the early ones, and it, it is really interesting how they're set up versus how we do it now. Because how we do it now works so well for us. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we a Kickstarter like every month or two at this point, and they're they're all pretty clockwork at this point. Like I remember being really nervous before my first one because I started with the company two weeks before we launched the Dragon Blooded Kickstarter. So I started with the company. I had never dealt with Exalted. And then they said, okay, cool. So now you're going to be involved in this Kickstarter right. for a property you're not super familiar with, with a very large fan base. And I was like, okay, I'll, <laughs> I'll do that. Um, but really, like, aside from, you know, being in the comments sometimes and answering questions, like James just does it. Like he just does the Kickstarter. It's great. <laughs> yeah, it is great. But I mean, as opposed to early on where, first of all, Rich had to do everything. Right. Um, as, uh, as if he's not busy enough. Right. And, and of course, it made him so wonderful to be around when he was doing that. <laughs> um, but Drew also, it's always that. wonderful to be around. What are you talking about? <laughs> so um, even back then, I was helping Rich by creating the uh, discount links and the coupon codes for oh, right. the backers as part of my role at drive-thru mm-hmm. um being managing all of the different white wolf onyx paths and and licenses as on the drive-thru side of things so now i still do that mm-hmm. um so when james needs a link like a back um well dragon blood is a good example we had some of the the classic the previous edition dragon blooded books is one of the reward tiers so i had to go in and make all of the codes for those so we could get them to the right backers and um, figure out where in the catalog uh, some stuff needs to be updated or um, we had a Kickstarter recently where one of the files didn't actually exist Yep. in the drive through ecosystem. That so was also fi- one of mine. <laughs> uh, that, 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 that was us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Well, so, it was because it was an exalted supplement that was originally only released online. It was um, like the old, extra creatures of the wild yeah, whatever supplement. It was like an old White Wolf website thing, right? Yeah. So oh, yeah, okay. luckily yeah. someone out there in the world had created a PDF. So we uh, got it. And now we have it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I mean, that's part of what I do today for Onyx uh, as far as Kickstarter. So James runs the front end and I still do a lot of the um, managing our drive through account because, since I've got lots of experience with it. Uh, I had done it previously, so it made sense for me to keep doing it. And if I remember correctly, um, you were also, you mentioned before you were helping Rich out the first Kickstarter, but I also think we were talking to you initially about Kickstarter strategy, like right out of the gate too, right? Oh, absolutely. Because um, the RPG industry jumped on Kickstarter almost immediately. Mm -hmm. Once once they discovered it, it became a, a massively useful uh, tool for lots of indie and small press publishers and for larger publishers that wanted to do experimental things like we think our fans would like this product but we're not sure enough to just print 5,000 copies and throw them into distribution so right. we're going to try Kickstarter and they'll tell us if they want this book or this box set or this board game so lots of people were coming to drive through for these um tool sets and options how do we give people this and how do we how can we use print on demand in in regards to kickstarter so that was a big early conversation as well um so lots that's one of the reasons we offer at cost discounts as part of our some of our kickstarters because we can still deliver the book in a different way to people mm -hmm. and part of the goal is to get books in people's hands so mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so the initial run of Kickstarters were really meant to be to reflect um, the old school limited edition runs like, you know, the black leatherettes, um, the high quality, you know, super deluxe versions of them, um, because it was a way to say, OK, we, if there's enough interest, then we can print this and go to a printer and print that up and then give it to exactly people who want it and we're done. Um, it, because otherwise, it's just not feasible to go through that kind of super deluxe opportunity unless we know there's a collector's market there. It turns out there are lots of interested collectors there. And um, interestingly about that, a lot of retail stores are not, or at least back then, were not as interested in carrying the limited edition leather bound books. So it was hard to, to create a demand right. through traditional channels of us printing X number of copies, giving them to a distributor and hoping that the retail stores would buy them. Mm -hmm. So Kickstarter allowed us to, get a set number of backers. We know there's X number of people that have paid for this book and yep. they really want it. And that allowed us to fund some supplements that we wouldn't have been able to do either. Mm -hmm. So, um, And actually that, that kind of leads to uh, um, a topic that we don't talk about a ton, but it's worth kind of just briefly touching on um, was that it's only been recently the Onyx path has gotten into distribution. It's, it's kind of a, some people say getting back in distribution, that's a misnomer. Onyx Path never did distribution initially because when I came on board and when you guys were working together, White Wolf was moving out of it. Um, White Wolf CCP, I should say, was moving out of distribution uh, and for a variety of reasons, most of which were CCP's a video game company. They don't know anything about publishing. Um, they just didn't have the logistics to run a publishing company. Um, so you and I were basically tasked to different sides of the fence to figure out new ways about that. Um, so when Rich starts his company up, he's 
one person. <laughs> He's not in a position to start printing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books and putting them in stores again. Um, but with Kickstarter, we've been able to slowly carefully move towards that. And that's part of your job now, uh, now that you've gone in operations, is to help us with that. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how Onyx Path got into that process and how that worked. Yeah, absolutely. Our, our first book that went into distribution was actually Scarred Lands. Oh, right. Part of our partnership with Nocturnal at the time was uh, we had decided uh, to, the two companies together could put uh, this book and the first supplement into stores. And that things have changed a bit now with uh, Stuart's passing and right. us acquiring all of Scardland's in-house. But then our next book was your Pugmire book. Mm-hmm. And... Um, we thought we could use Kickstarter to not only fund the book, but also to fund a print run that would give us enough revenue to make a decent enough selection of books to, that stores could then buy them. And we had already started working with uh, Indie Press Revolution uh, to handle all of our overruns of the Kickstarter, mm-hmm. of the previous Kickstarter books. Um, and they sell direct to retailers. So they do both direct online sales and uh retailers can log in and buy books from them at a discount. Mm-hmm. And that was a great partnership for us for a lot of reasons because we did every time we do a Kickstarter, even the deluxe uh, werewolf 20, for example, we overprint to make sure we have enough copies to cover damages or loss. Right. But then eventually you've resolved most of those situations and you still have extra books. So I needed a solution as to what to do with them. And IPR is like, Hey, we have a really big warehouse. And I'm like, mm-hmm. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we had established a great relationship with them for those uh, limited edition books. And once Scardlands and Pugmire came along, we were looking for distribution solutions. But we also gave IPR a number because they already had stores buying from them directly. And I thought that was a really cool move, which led me to Studio Two, mm-hmm. who is much more of a fulfillment house that sells to distributors. So the thing that the big difference between the two companies is IPR sells direct to stores. Studio two sells to distributors like ACD and Alliance and uh, SDVM and Golden. So and, IPR is kind of a micro distributor in itself. Yeah. Yeah. They, they have a cool online store. They do great convention mm-hmm. uh, sales. And then retailers can also log in and order direct. I want two of these, four of those, one of those, and they'll ship direct to that store at a discount. And they give me monthly reports, and it's really great to see which stores are buying our stuff so I can start building relationships with those companies. Uh, Studio 2 does sort of a much more macro level where they send sell sheets out months in advance. They have a build a relationship with distributors who then sell to individual stores. Um, and they, they can handle much larger uh, print runs of stuff. So the stuff we're putting big runs like Pugmire changing the lost second edition, for mm-hmm. example, um, studio two will handle that. They'll do our Kickstarter fulfillment and then they will push those books out to distributors who then talk to their retailers. And I manage both of those along with all of our drive through accounts and try and get books out to people. 
Right. And so now we have this nice kind of three-pronged approach of, of the electronic distribution for DTR, which we've been doing for well over a decade now. Um, Studio 2, like I said, going to other distributors, and then IPR is kind of the boutique. I, I just want to get it directly direct to me or um, whatever. Um, so we have these kind of storefronts. But, I mean, for a while we were like – we had different people doing distribution for Kickstarters and this and that. And the other stuff's really – at least from my end, it's been very nice to see it all kind of consolidate into these three solid partners. Yeah, it's it's been – we tried several different – Rich touched on this in the blog a little bit. We tried several different uh, fulfillment partners for the, the physical books. Um, some worked better than others. Some had uh, shipping-related challenges. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have run into that just about every time. But uh, Studio 2 does a lot of our um, print book fulfillment for – our bigger runs of whatever book that happens to be. Um, and then after that, if it's a distribution title like Changeling or Pugmire or Monarchies of Mao, they then push that out into the retail channel. If it's a more limited edition book like uh, Wraith 20, for example, mm-hmm. the remainder copies will get sent to IPR and they'll handle the direct sales of that. On top of that, we've recently started pushing more into ebook channels for fiction, Amazon. Uh, the Kindle and the Nook for Barnes and Noble, mm-hmm. so I manage those as well. Um, and we might try some Kickstarter-related fulfillment related to that in the future. Nice. Figure it out. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, uh, we kind of lost our but I want to touch back on it briefly. Um, uh, shipping has come up a lot, uh, and not just for us, but like. Every Kickstarter that that does ships a physical thing. I mean, it's um, not even just for Kickstarter. Like, it's just shipping has gone up in the U.S. Like, right. Oh, absolutely. Like even rich... even drive through RPGs print books. Yeah. Uh, pr- prices have gone up. Yeah, Rich Richmond on the blog, but I uh, I I shipped a friend his copy of Beckett's Jihad Diary uh, last week, and it was forty nine dollars and seventy cents to ship it to Canada. Yeah. And like, it only took two days to get there. And I was kind of like, I would have been fine with it taking a week and being half the price, but right. all right. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's um, between, you know, uh, the, the cost increases and also um, with like situations in the EU um, and in the US with tariff changes and whatnot, um, the logistics of shipping have also gotten more complicated over the past four or five years. Um, so having a partner that can just handle that is a huge weight off of our collective shoulders. Yeah, and both Studio 2 and, and IPR have been fantastic partners in the initial ship out, mm-hmm. but also helping us solve problems as they come up. Uh, this copy got lost in customs mm-hmm. or this one got damaged. Uh, they've both been really super great partners in responding to those individual situations rather than, well, that wasn't on the big spreadsheet. So, because right. we did have some earlier partners that had a, were great at the initial ship out, but not so much at follow the follow up. Right. So it's been a constant um, working with people and building those relationships as to how Kickstarter is its own unique situation compared to selling books in stores or selling books on drive through. Mm-hmm. Uh, because people move between when they fund a Kickstarter and when the books ship, for example. And it's trying to figure out solutions for all of those individual fans to get them their stuff. I did that, and I didn't update my address, and I felt really silly about it because I know better. <laughs> like of all people, <laughs> I know better. Um, no, I, I luckily, did the same thing too. 
Luckily, they afforded it to me, and I only had to pay three dollars. That's nice. Yeah, I had to write them a check. I had to find a checkbook. <laughs> I have to wow, find a checkbook. I don't think I have one since I switched banks. I only have one because at my old apartment in Connecticut, uh, that's the only way the landlord took rent was by check. So I really? had like a checkbook for paying rent. Yeah, I had to drop it off at his house. He was seventy eight years old. Oh, okay. Um, it's 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 fine, but uh, that's that's how he took rent. So like. I have a checkbook and I had to dig it out of like a drawer that it was shoved in when the mail guy was like, I can take a check or money order. And I was like, do you think I have a money order lying around like in my house for three dollars and seven cents or whatever? No. <laughs> yeah. Is that how I'm just going to tell work? mail anecdotes this entire interview. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, I think I think it's 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 thematically appropriate considering that that's weirdly a, a large chunk of your job, Matt. I mean, actually, you're the operations manager now at Onyx Path Publishing, and so your job is primarily logistics. So maybe we kind of go into a bit more about what all your job covers specifically. Yeah, it's exactly, it's a lot of different pieces to keep the company um, well, operating. So that That's the name. <laughs> our, yeah, uh, that includes all of our retail uh, and not just game stores, but all of the places we sell product. So drive through takes up a lot of that, but also managing these relationships with our fulfillment and distribution partners and all of our different brands. Um, the one I, I have the least amount of involvement, in, which is great because Ian manages our Redbubble store, and I just have to check in now and then and mm -hmm. plan like we work together to plan when we're doing new stickers or T-shirts and whatnot, but also working with our with the three of you as to what our, our publication schedule is going to be, mm -hmm. what's being released when and where, and where is it going to be available, and how on track are we to get new releases out every Wednesday, yeah. for mm -hmm. example. That's actually a question for, for the listeners who always want to know what, what goes on in the Monday meeting. That's a question that gets asked every Monday meeting, is what are we putting on sale Wednesday? Mm -hmm. um, and often we already have something planned, you know? Often it's like, oh, well, this thing is coming out, so we'll put that on sale Wednesday. Um, every now and then we're like, uh, can we make some journals? <laughs> right. But we always get something out, which is really cool. And usually it's usually it's a book of some sort. Um, occasionally it is it is rug bubble merch. But yeah, that is a question that gets asked every single Monday meeting. And uh, often there's an answer. Once in a blue moon, we all kind of go, um, hmm, <laughs> we should figure that out. Yeah, and, and part of my role with that is if it's a drive-through thing, I do the scheduling. I, I also set up um, if it's a something that's one of our licensing partners, whether that's White Wolf or um, upcoming licenses like Dystopia Rising and Legend Lore. Mm -hmm. uh, how our relationship with those companies is set up, and what what they need to know about stuff that's their IP coming out when and uh, how. Those licenses are structured. Won't really get into too many of those details, but there's always pieces of those deals that we have to communicate and manage, and that's a large part of what I do. Um, and then related to that is all of our conventions mm -hmm. is a big part of my role. Um, where we're selling, which conventions we're going to have a booth at, which parts, of, who on our team is going to be at which show, um, working with like the wrecking crew to run games. Um, setting up interviews and meetings with translators and licensors. Mm -hmm. So, and actually, um, since you mentioned on uh, conventions, um, that's, that's a good topic to move into is, um, 
uh, you have always been very adamant of constantly reassessing our convention strategy. Like, to be fair, before we came on boards, we didn't really have a convention strategy. So your first year was just have a convention strategy. Um, but since then, you, you've always been very strong about, okay, is this convention working for us? Do we need to look at this other convention? Um, and so we've made changes like um, this year, we're not having a booth at Gen Con. Um, that's a big part of it. Yeah. Um, we've, I felt for a while that we'd kind of been like we, as you said, when we started, it was, okay, we, we go to this convention. Yeah. And for a while, Drive Through RPG was running the booth on behalf of Onyx Path mm-hmm. and Monty Cook Games and um, and White Wolf and a couple of other publishers. And then that transitioned over to each of those publishers doing their own booth. Mm-hmm. So for Onyx Path, it was okay. Now we have a booth, just like we did, except we're running it instead of Drive Throughs running it. Right. Happens to be me was running it then, and me running it now. Right. But technically, it's a different company. So for a while, we were just doing the same thing and. We expanded in small ways, like going to Midwinter, building our presence there, mm-hmm. uh, which is a great show for us for a lot of different reasons. Mm-hmm. And then it was, okay, we've spent X number of dollars doing the same thing for the same number of years, and there are other shows we can do. So we tried Packs Unplugged the first year, and that was a huge success for us. So we sat down as a team and talked about, do we keep doing the same thing? every year for the same reason or do we try and experiment different ways and getting us to different shows mm-hmm. and gen con uh was definitely a show we needed to reassess because we'd sort of just always done the same thing yeah and i th- figured we can we have great partners like studio two and ipr selling our books already so do we need our books for sale in three locations in the same hall mm-hmm. and we got the wrecking crew running games. Well, how about if we change our strategy up and that allows us to do other conventions? Like we did UK games expo for the first time this year. Mm-hmm. That's a thing we wouldn't have been able to afford to do if we'd just done the same process over and over again. Right. So, so yeah, and it's helpful to have someone think about this because, um, I know from my ends, uh, um, it's really easy to get wound up in the process of making a thing. Um, it's like, cool. It's like, you know, I, I get the outline together, get the book together, get the writers together, get the art together, pitch it online, you know, talk to the people in the Kickstarter community, do the errata, whatever. Um, and so knowing that there's someone there who can kind of pick up the ball and move it on and make sure we're thinking about, hey, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Um, that's one of the things we don't talk about is, aside from the meeting, we also have our quarterly uh, uh, production meetings. Um, and part of that is to help you be able to say, okay, when is this book actually coming out? If it came out on this month, we could take advantage of this synergistic thing that's happening, or it's going to close to this convention. We can make it a big deal of it there. Um, we need to start prepping for making a big deal of this book that's about to come out. Um, uh, uh, so like on top of all of this, you're also responsible to a large degree for our marketing um, and how these books get noticed. And that involves knowledge of the conventions and the strategies and with the printing and all that. So, I mean, um, how much thought have you put into how we do our marketing lately? Quite a bit. Um, as far as which convention we're going to be at, where I look at which books are coming out, mm-hmm. either which books are either on Kickstarter or uh, hitting store shelves around that time. And that's how I plan which games we're going to be running 
at those whether that's the wrecking crew whether that's uh those of us going to PAX or UK Games Expo, we we try and plan excitement around either a thing we're trying to fund on Kickstarter or a thing that's hitting stores just before or during that convention because that really builds excitement for that particular launch. And we need to build awareness for all of those games. I mean, we'd love to run our entire catalog, but that's a lot of games. Right. Yeah. And... <laughs> So we try and tie in stuff that's exciting at the time, to at least as far as convention demos. Uh, and Matthew Dawkins has been fantastic working with a whole bunch of people running actual plays online mm-hmm. more recently. And that's been part of our bigger strategy of building awareness for all of our different games uh, because people are consuming gaming entertainment in new ways that we didn't even dream of back when the company started. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, if you told us six, seven years ago that, hey, people are going to sit in front of their computer and watch people play role-playing games who would laugh at you. Yeah. So part of marketing that I also do, like we were talking about what's coming out on Wednesday, mm-hmm. is uh, I send out review copies uh, of whatever the new thing is. And I, I try and sometimes I do that early, sometimes I do that the day of, depending on what the strategy is for that particular release. Because we're trying to build more awareness for it. And for a little while, we would release a, a thing. We would fulfill a Kickstarter. Backers would get their stuff, and then we would put it up on drive through and then we just sort of, okay, that's out now. Okay. All of our marketing was done. And I I think we needed to have, shake things up a little bit because there's so many cool games people can buy these days that uh, our job shouldn't just be done when the book comes out. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of strategies about how we interact with the audience, how we play test, how we get reviews, how we go to conventions and present our products. So the last year has been a lot of new experiments with how we interact with actual play, convention experience, release schedules, and that sort of thing. And actually, um, uh, uh, although it may not seem that way to a lot of people externally, um, that line of thinking is what I believe led you to doing us doing things like community content. Absolutely. Um, DMs Guild came along and changed how people could interact with Dungeons & Dragons. They, so many DMs create an adventure and they run it for their players. Maybe they run it at Gen Con, but now they can publish that and make make a little money doing it, but also other people around the world that are playing the game can buy that adventure and play. Mm-hmm. And right away we saw a huge potential for our games because Pugmire being the first one we did a community content program for mm-hmm. was perfect for people to create their own uh, characters, their own adventures, their own uh, monsters and their own challenges. And it allowed people to interact with the game in a different way. Um, and now we're doing that with Scardlands. We've got the Story Path Nexus launching this week, mm-hmm. which will open with Scion 2nd Edition, and eventually we'll add Trinity and They Came From and Dystopia Rising to. And then um, we unlocked Monarchies of Mao for Canis Minor a little while ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the awesome things that's happening right now for the Scardlands community content program is this Vengeance of the Shunned uh, group project, which is oh, yeah. going to run all summer long. 20 different creators creating adventures that are interconnected plus side quests and bonus products. And it's a huge uh, 
it's a thing we couldn't do directly in the same way because this is 20 to 23 different fans of Scarlands getting together and bouncing ideas off of each other and helping each other publish a new product every Tuesday. And it's just fascinating to see how that's coming together. Yeah, and that was not something we necessarily pushed. It was something just Travis was like, I want to try this cool thing, and it just grew and grew and grew. Yeah, and he, he reached out to uh, other creators on DMs Guild, other Scardlands fans on like the Facebook groups, uh, people he's gamed with locally, and it, it was a really fascinating way of how seeing how the fans of Scardlands interacted and made each other's ideas that much stronger. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, we're getting a little uh, low on time, but um, mentioning Scarlands, did me, I do want to go back to something that um, I don't think it's talked about a lot in regards to you, um, is that, you know, we, we kind of went through the business side of we need to evolve the drive through RPG and bring, you know, these games back to make sure people have access to them, blah, blah, blah. And that's all great business case stuff. Um, but really, you were one of the key people in the past decade to help with the archaeology of tabletop role-playing games in a lot of ways. You've helped to bring back games that were just gone, no one could find anymore, no one could get access to anymore. Um, And uh, uh, it's been fascinating to watch people rediscover games that either I grew up with or even were come and gone before I even got into the industry in the 80s. Um, The late 70s era of RPGs is just was a blank slate for a lot of people. Um, so what has it been like for you to, do you ever take a step back and go, oh my God, I was instrumental in bringing that game back in some way or bringing that awareness around for any game? Um, I, <laughs> I, I don't know if I, I ever looked at it in that particular light because part of my mission since I started like a drive through in 2007 was if I could, I want to get every RPG product that's ever existed at least available in PDF. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just awesome that I get to still do part of that because I'm, I'm while I'm full-time at Onyx Path, I am also still uh, part-time at drive through mm-hmm. largely managing things like DMs Guild and Storytellers Vault for White Wolf. But part of my role with the Wizards of the Coast and D&D stuff is what you said, is getting the entire backlist scanned and made available, at least in digital, if not also in print-on-demand. And that's been tons of fun, of course. I happen to get a copy of most of the books that we do, (laughs) so my gaming library has expanded quite a bit. And there's stuff I've either never seen before or I'm rediscovering for the for the first time in years uh, and that's been pretty awesome um, my office is a little over full of books <laughs> can imagine. at the moment so I, I need some new solutions for that but um, I don't want to hear it I don't want to hear you or Rich or anybody <laughs> complain about your RPG libraries I have like two shelves worth I have 15 would How you like some more Dixie? I'm sure Matt can give you some <laughs> I only own yeah. like 20% of the books I've worked on <laughs> like come on Oh, that reminds me. I do have a box of stuff to ship you. Yeah, you do. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> uh, so before we wrap up, um, if there was one thing you wished every Onyx Path fan knew about operations, what would it be? Hmm. Uh, that... Uh, uh, 
that we're going to try different things. We're going to experiment from time to time. And sometimes it's going to work, sometimes it's not. Mm -hmm. And the more feedback we get, the better. That helps us be a better company for the fans. So ask questions. Give us feedback. Um, Talk to us about your games. Talk to us about your experience getting our games. Is there a retailer that you think is awesome but doesn't know about us let us know do you think that dixie should definitely be at uk games expo next year (laughs) (laughs) because i mean i think i think if everybody demanded that (laughs) everybody being at least dixie (laughs) (laughs) but that's one of the things where where operations (laughs) is experimenting is how we interact with (laughs) conventions yeah totally Um, and how we need to hear that sort of stuff from the fans. Uh, is this convention a good fit for us? And then we take a look at it as a team and say, yeah, it'd be awesome if we could go to that convention, but that's our entire convention budget for the year right. or not. Like, how do we re, how do we engage with the audience in ways the audience wants to talk to us? Absolutely. So. And actually, that's a good kind of segue. Um, because you're so busy and you have so many fingers, so many pies, um, if people did want to give you that feedback, what is the best way for people to get in touch with you? Is it social media? Is it email? The uh, contact form on the website has a marketing link, and that's one of the best ways to do it. But also jump on our uh, discussion pages on Facebook and uh, Discord because we're trying to create these channels where we can have the community talk to mm-hmm. us and those are readily accessible and lots of us participate in those channels and the Facebook discussion groups, for example, we have a new one just for people interested in community content. So if you're thinking about publishing your, your first Pugmire or Scarlands or Scion PDF, jump into that group and let's talk shop a bit. Absolutely. Um, so thank you so much, Matt, for your time to talk about this stuff. I'm sure a lot of our community is really happy to know more about how everything works. Thank you so much for having me on. And now we're on to the outro. And we're back. As if we never went away. And yes. <laughs> I've been sitting here for the whole interview. Just... You've done that too. Wonderful. Okay. It's quietly sitting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was in the interview, so I guess I wasn't quietly sitting. I guess I was actually talking, but you know. No, you asked a few questions. I was being very quiet. Quiet as the grave, as they say. <laughs> You're very on yeah. brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, I like to live my live my life. No, that's the one thing I don't do. I like to live my profession. <laughs> I do actually, go around what? haunting graveyards, digging up corpses, and reanimating them for various and sundry purposes, usually for dance acts. So you're a zombie wrangler. Yeah. Well, you know. For your synchronized swimming team. Yeah. They don't they don't swim very well. Uh, zombies really struggle to float. Uh, I think so, after you've been dead a certain time, uh, you, you lose that uh, buoyancy. You also lose cohesion. I don't know. I, I, see, I don't Much know. Like I think... this podcast. <laughs> we are a decaying zombie putrefying into the pod sphere I, I would assume that it would be fairly not easy but a moderately difficult task to get 
a zombie to move its limbs in a certain synchronized fashion. Uh, so, so teaching a zombie to make the movements required for swimming without tiring wouldn't be too difficult. Getting it to do things like pirouettes and uh, sort of double twist jump dives off a board might be more difficult because you know I don't I don't know whether these zombies are rigged, whether they're a bit floppy. <laughs> if when they've been in the water for a bit long, they start to slough off their skin, that wouldn't be good, would it? Why did they bring this up? Well, this is why they <laughs> dance. This is why I have them dance, not swim. Swimming, that's fr- frankly a nonsense. <laughs> right. Because zombies dancing makes perfect sense, but zombies swimming is just utter lunacy. There's a very popular music video in which this happens. <laughs> right. Which was obviously a documentary. Yeah. A popular music video documentary in which this happens. Vincent Price lends his voice to it, so it has to be good. He is, of course, talking about zombie jamboree. Yeah. The yes. Classic dance tune. Uh, <laughs> I like that song. What? No, I'm I'm sighing at just all of this. Just just all of this. Eddie sighing web. Sighing web. Yes. Um, but yes, uh, the interview was nice. Um, the thing we just did. Uh, no, but I mean, it, it was it was. I think it's really useful to kind of chat not only uh, with Matt about. Uh, his career, all the stuff he's done, he's been so instrumental in in a lot of the recent history of RPGs. But also, it was nice to be able to take a chance to dig into how we're doing our Kickstarters, how we're doing our, our shipping stores, all that stuff that's still important, but is perhaps not as, as exciting or scintillating as, like, how to make a book, you know? I mean, I think shipping and receiving is just as exciting as writing words. Well, you are for you. It is exciting. You can leave that in. Don't edit it out. This is how I normally talk. <laughs> it, take, it takes a lot of warm up, a lot of goo 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 before I can start, you know, talking normal. Normal fucking hell. Where was I? Yes, it's very exciting for customers, the shipping and delivery process. That was a worthwhile build up, wasn't it? <laughs> No, it's it, 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 it's fine. I mean, because it, it's we get a lot of questions about things like um, why is shipping so expensive? It's like we'd like to know that too, you know. Yeah, because shipping is expensive everywhere. Like I appreciate Dixie bringing up the fact that, that you know how expensive it was to ship a book to our friends across a conjoined landmass border, you know. Yeah, it's it's really strange because I used to um, I have another very good friend who lives in the Toronto area. And we used to send each other, like, packages and gifts and stuff regularly. Like, I would send him a box of, like, three or four books. And it would be, like, mm-hmm. $14. Right. And this was five years ago. And mm-hmm. it, and now it cost me $50 to send one book to one friend in British Columbia. Yeah. Not not, not great. Not ideal. <laughs> so there, and of course, on top of that, um, I was just talking to Rich the other day about um, printing costs. Um, just we're looking at you know things like printing Trinity and uh, doing reprints of some other books, um, and paper costs have gone up recently too, on top of shipping costs. So I mean mm-hmm. it's 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 going to be a challenging time the next few years, honestly. So having someone like Matt who's looking at all that stuff, thinking about it, is actually just a huge relief. Yeah, and anyone who is looking at backing one of our Kickstarters who lives overseas, I mean, we do always try to make the suggestions like if you and some friends want to go in on them together, and you can get them all shipped to one place or you know, if, if there are various delivery services in your area that make it a little cheaper for you, then awesome. Like, please mm-hmm. use those. But we're doing the best we can on our end. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, 
we were talking before the show a little bit, um, kind of what where we're at and what we're doing. Um, and Dixie was just talking about how she's entering the the exciting new world of art notes. <laughs> yeah, so I've I've only done art notes once before, um, where where I've had to do them, and that was for Adventures for Curious Cats. Right, but. The Pugmire style and the Monarchies of Mouse style was so established already, it mm-hmm. really wasn't that difficult. It was like, okay, look at the adventure. These cats are finding these creatures. Here's what they look like. Okay. And then by the time I got to the end, like, when I started out, I was very detailed describing the cats. I was, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, this is an orange cat and he looks like this, whatever. Because I was describing the cats I live with because that's what you right. do. Right. Um, and then I got to like the fourth or fifth illustration and I was like, oh, no, it's some cats. Make them look different. Like, don't, don't make them all look the same. Like, you know what cats look like. Um, and I, I I think that happens sometimes, you know? It's like yeah. you just get to a point and you're like, there are cats. Like, dogs are a little bit different, I think, because all the breeds are so specific looking. Mm. Right. But the cats look like cats. Like, yep. some of them are fat, some of them are skinny, some of them are fluffy, some of them don't have any fur. That's, you know, th- those those are the variations. Um. But this one's a little bit harder because I'm working on a Chronicles of Darkness book. I guess I can talk about it a little bit. Yeah, sure. I'm doing some preliminary art notes for Deviant the Renegades. Um, and since that is a new game line, it doesn't have an art style. Right. So I am not only writing the art notes, I'm working with the developers, Eric Zawadzki and Dave Brickshaw, to figure out what the art should look like in the first place. Because every Chronicles line, even though they all have that kind of, you know, modern urban horror thing going on we do use a lot of artists across them they do all have their own mood and tone mm-hmm. like changeling art looks very different from requiem art for instance and werewolf art looks very different from mage art um so trying to figure out what deviance art will look like as you know what the 13th line 12th 13th line so how many lines do there. i have i don't know uh, oh i think it's the 12th okay uh, <laughs> i don't know there's too many um but like trying to figure out what it's going to look like to kind of separate it from the other ones is is interesting and then also one thing that we always talk about when we do art notes um which people might not know about is that if you give a bunch of artists just kind of vague descriptions a lot of times what you get back is very like default media people right so you get a lot of very attractive white people sometimes And that's not really the fault of the artist. It's kind of what it's there. There are too many other companies and books that want that. Mm-hmm. But we always try to go for diversity in our art notes if, if we can. But that means you have to be very specific, especially yeah. if you're working with a language barrier of any kind. Uh, there mm-hmm. are many of our artists that aren't U.S. or or U.K. based um, or Canadian based, whatever. Uh, so they sometimes are using like a translate feature to even translate what you're saying. So you've got to be very specific and sometimes a little bit blunt even like sometimes it feels weird to you know be like this this is a very dark-skinned you know middle eastern person wearing this this and that and it it occasionally feels odd because it's not always how you describe people in real life right but for the art you kind of need it Mm. so i'm working on that so i'm doing some pieces that go with the chapter fiction like we do for most Mm -hmm. of our books um which hopefully crossing my fingers will be samurai pieces because i think they usually are um and his work is so Evocative. I just love it. We love, Sam, uh, we love Sam's work. Yeah, but then I'm I'm also figuring out what the splats are going to look like, uh, which is something that you know that's a very big piece of artwork in all of our books. There, you know, mm-hmm. people still wear T-shirts of the original vampire splats and stuff. Like this is a yeah. a, a cool thing. Uh, so figuring out what those characters are going to look like to go with the uh, various 
kinds of deviants, the, the, the origins and clades, is really cool. But it's also just, you know, I've got to actually put some thought into it. So something that sounds like it might only take a day or so to some people usually takes a little longer. Um, I think I, th- I think most folks kind of look at the art notes process and they don't know like what all goes into it. And right. for me, it really is like there's a lot of thought. You've got to visualize these people. You've got to think about all the different, you know, kinds of people that could look this way. You've got to figure out how to convey the tone of the book through the art. And I mean, the artists do a lot of the heavy lifting on that. But if you give them vague descriptions, you get vague artwork. Like, I would love to show somebody our exalted art note sometime because they're all like three paragraphs long (laughs) with like (laughs) reference photos, like all kinds of stuff, because exalted has a very specific look. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So this will be fun. I mean, I'd rather do it for Chronicles than exalted because at least I'm describing modern day people in modern day clothing. (laughs) Yeah, right. but there's still you know a lot that goes into it. So yeah, it's 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 fun. Have 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 y'all run into anything like that with art notes? Have you had any kind of weirdness or hurdles that you didn't expect? Well, for me, it's uh, that there's a couple of things that you touched on that I've found uh, that idea of whether to provide an artist or the artists with uh, brief art notes so they can be creative or be highly specified and potentially stymie their creativity. I remember when I Mm -hmm. first started developing books and writing art notes a few years ago, uh, I guess it would have been around Beckett's Jihad Diary Time or V20 uh, Dark Ages Companion. Mm -hmm. I was really uh, toing and froing between how how specific should I be here? Is it going to frustrate the artists? As I imagine it would frustrate some writers if your outline was blow by blow, this is what you're going to write. If Mm. I was an artist and I was told this is exactly what I have to draw, paint, or what have you, uh, does it basically mean, okay, well, in that case, all I'm basically doing is pointing and shooting. Um, So, yeah, that was something that I struggle with. But interestingly... I've found the amount of time I have to spend on art notes does vary greatly depending on the project. Yes. Right. So on Chicago by Night, for instance, which uh, as of time of recording has just gone off to Paradox for approval. Woohoo! I probably only took about an hour to do uh, the art notes for a 200,000 word book. It just completely flowed. I, I made a spreadsheet. Uh, had the number of halves, fulls, and portrait style uh, pieces that I needed to get commissioned via Mike, our art director. And yeah, I just went bang, 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 all the way through, nice and easy. And then when it came to a game like They Came From Beneath the Sea, I spent um, hours, if not over a day, finishing the art notes for that, which is a book roughly similar size. Mm-hmm. And I and I suspect it's for exactly the reason you mentioned, Dixie, that it's a new book, it's a new game line. Knowing what the art style should be and being able to picture all of those things afresh is is quite a challenge because I know what a vampire and masquerade should look like. Edition, right. be damned. Right. Uh, but and they came from beneath the sea. It's slightly different. Yeah, and uh, that maps to my experiences because just like Dixie said, once Rich and I established the look for Pugmire. It's it's pretty easy for me these days to kind of just knock out art notes. Yeah, um, you just pick the most exciting scene or thing that could be happening on that page and you describe it. Right. And you go, but it's dogs. Have fun. You know? Whereas the aberrant art note process took two months. Um, because, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, uh, one was it's 
a newish game line. Um, you know, uh, it, Trinity doesn't quite have a cohesive look yet. It's getting there. Um, we had some boundaries we wanted to go for, um, but also it was a reboot of an existing game. Um, Rich had a different wanted to take a different look for the game. Um, Mike had some different ideas on the look for it, uh, and we wanted to bring a whole bunch of new writers, specifically comic book artists, I should say, not writers, no, but comic book artists on board. Um, so we're, <laughs> we had to have more explicit art notes because these would be brand new people who may or may not be familiar with the property. And again, the reboot, there's stuff have changed too. So um, there was a lot of work on that, figuring out the right tone, figuring out the look for that. And then on top of that, because we decided to do, we went a bunch of comic pages inside of it, that was a whole new process. I think I've talked about it before on Pathcast. It was you know, me learning how to write comic scripts and mm-hmm. us talking about what kinds of things look good in comic strip, but luckily we were all comic book fans. Um, and, and Mike and Richard had some tangential experience with the comic book industry. Um, so, you know, they, we had a lot of discussion on that point. So it was definitely new game line ish plus new artists, plus brand new things we've never done in art before that really just made that art in process a much longer thing. And we luckily we knew that. Yeah. So I was able to kind of start that art process a lot earlier than I normally would. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a little lucky with Deviant in that, you know, it, it goes with all of our second edition books, even though it's a first edition, technically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen all the second edition cores that are out so far, um, including some that aren't out. Like, I've seen all the art for Geist, you know? So being able to kind of go off that and go like, okay, well, I want it to be distinct from this for these reasons. Um, Deviant is a bit of a challenge in that Deviants can look like a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Like, when you're talking about, you know werewolves like they they turn into wolves and pass out right. their people <laughs> right. and when you're talking about geists the ghosts can look like a bunch of things but the ghosts typically used to be human so right. you got a human and then you got a geist and the geist is creepy looking and the human's slightly creepy looking mm-hmm. but with deviant like you can have cybernetics you can turn into a giant monster you can have claws you can have scales you can have bionic arms you know like whatever so mm-hmm. You, you can kind of go wild, but I also want to rein it in enough that it's cohesive. Right. So that's 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 where I'm having fun with it, is being like, everyone should look a little off for whatever reason, but some of them are just going to look like people. Not not too many of them, but there are going to be a couple that are just telepathic. So they don't have a, a visible a tell, outward yeah. thing. Yeah. Mm. Um, so even like trying to convey that through artwork can be fun. But yeah, we'll figure it out. Figure it out. Um, so, uh, if people want to chat with you about Deviant Dixie, where would they find you online? I'd find me most places as Dixie Cyanide. I'm in a bunch of the discords too. So if you're ever in like the Chronicles of Darkness discord that we don't run or the Onyx Path discord that we do run or the Exalted discord, I am, I am taggable if you have a question. Matthew? You can find me on matthewdawkins.com where if you are interested in running an actual play, interviewing any of the Onyx Pathers, reviewing any of our books or similar, I recommend contacting me through that website. There's a link to basically an email inbox that I will receive your details via, and it's a very useful way of you getting in touch with me so that we can promote your content on the Onyx Path blog every Monday. And that's very exciting, having watching people play our games. Yeah. Um, and people can find me... Uh, uh, eddiefate.com um, you can find me on twitter at eddiefate e-d-d-y-f-a-t-e um, you can find me most of my company outlets at pugsteady or pugsteady.com um, if you want more information about Pugmire that's realmsofpugmire.com and if you want to see more about the Onyx, Onyx Path there's theonyxpath.com um, we have an Onyx Path 
Facebook groups and a lot of Facebook groups. Um, and the Dixie mentioned we have the Onyx Path Discord, which I was chided for not mentioning last time I was host. So now I have mentioned <laughs> the Onyx Path Discord. Um, and but seriously, you know, uh, we we love hearing from people. To let us know what's going on. Um, recent events had me clarify that being a little nice about it would be nice because we've had some people who are very passionate, but also a little blunt, and sometimes that can be hard to take. Um, so if you have respectful disagreements, we'd love to hear them so we can do better. Uh, but as always, many worlds, one